Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Lowe Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. To keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everybody, hello and welcome to the Spark Parade, a show where I talk to artists and entertainers about their cultural spark of inspiration. I'm Adam Unz. Thank you very much for coming. This is the first Spark Parade live show. Um, Woo! I'm very happy to be doing this at Common Everybody. This is a home away from home for me, and um, it's great to have a, a venue that's so welcoming as my first venue for a live show. Um, so I am doing this with support from the City Arts Corps. Um, if you'll indulge me, this is a little blurb about them. The City Arts Corps uh, represents uh, an historic investment in artists by the New York uh, City of New York. The $25 million program will support artists who live and work in NYC while giving New Yorkers opportunities to experience cultural programming across the cities starting this summer. So um, they are trying to encourage people to come back to live performance after the terrible year that we've all had. And um, I really appreciate their support. So let's get on with the show. My guests are uh, some pretty amazing people. First of all, he is one of New York's most well-respected and important DJs and the creator of such legendary parties as Fire in the Hole and Come on Everybody's Own. Yes, homo, it's Sean McMahill. Hello. He is a writer and the host of Whispering Hunties, a podcast which celebrates global queer culture and everything related to RuPaul's Drag Race. It's me, John Zulu. And she is a New York drag icon and was recently and absolutely justly crowned Miss Bushwick 2021. It is Neon Calypso. Hi. So the deal here is that each of these lovely people has chosen a work of art that has a significance to their life and or career. Um, and we're gonna have a little fun talking to each of them about their choices. So first up, is Sean McMahill with Grease 2. Oh my God. Quick, <laughs> quick facts about Grease 2. Grease 2 is a musical comedy film released in 1982. It is the sequel to the 1978 film Grease, which was tremendously successful and is still one of the highest grossing movie musicals of all time. Grease 2 takes place two years after the originals, uh, original film's high school graduation at Rydell High School. Um, it has an almost entirely new cast, led by actors Maxwell Caulfield and Michelle Pfeiffer in her first starring role. Oh. 
Unlike its predecessor, Grease 2 was a critical and commercial failure, <laughs> grossing $15 million on an $11 million budget. In spite of its initial failings, Grease 2 has built a sizable fan base in the decades since its, since its release and is now considered a cult classic. Mr. McMahill, uh, the first question here is always, do you remember seeing this movie for the first time? Pretty much. Uh, when I was like 12 or 13, uh, I grew up in a very small town in the middle of the cornfields of Illinois, as I think you know. Uh, and around that time, we got cable television for the first time. They wired us up. It was very exciting. This was the early 80s. So, uh, and so we got HBO. And all of a sudden, there were all these movies in our house that, of course, you had to like check the schedule and see what was on. But uh, it was very exciting because we didn't have like a local video store or anything like that. This was probably around the time that VCRs started to become popular as well. Uh, so because there were limited movies that HBO used to show, it would be the same movie on many, many times throughout the month. And <laughs> I remember that. one of the first movies that I remember catching and videotaping on the VCR and watching with my friends over and over and over again was, for some reason, Grease 2. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I talk a lot about this, like, pre-digital age entertainment and... You know, I don't think that young people, young people nowadays don't understand <laughs> the pain of that, that like, you know, having... Walking uphill in the snow both ways to, <laughs> to Blockbuster. I mean, basically, just, yeah. just even the feeling of having a new release come out on a Friday and being really excited and getting to the video store and it's not there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like delayed gratification, but also having access to movies on TV and having to watch the same things over and over again and you know, building relationships with those films because they're the only thing available to you. Yeah, and I mean, before cable, it was literally like ABC, NBC, CBS, and PBS. Basically, like, that's, like, if the antenna could catch it, that was it. Like, yeah. and then with cable, I think it was literally 13 channels, but one of those channels was HBO, which was amazing. Right. So, yeah. So did you... How did you feel about this movie the first time that you saw it? Were you in love with it from the second you saw it? Because I know uh, this is another controversy. Sean does not like the original Grease. So I don't know if I'd actually seen the first Grease when I first saw Grease 2. I think it was really a point of, like, on a Saturday afternoon, like there's nothing else going on, so literally just turn on HBO and see what's happening. And I feel like I discovered a lot of movies in the early to mid-80s in that way. And this was probably one of those. Uh, and I remember Grease sort of existing in the world. Like, I remember somebody bringing the, the soundtrack album to school, like the LP. And here's a slightly embarrassing sort of... I was like, okay, I'm curious about this. I want to know what this is. I joined the... RCA uh, cassette club at the time before CD clubs were a thing because before CDs were a thing. Amazing. And I ordered the like 12 cassettes for a penny or whatever. And one of the ones that I ordered was Grease because I knew that people liked it and I was curious. But I inadvertently ordered the original cast recording and not the movie soundtrack. So it didn't have, you know, uh, You're the One That I Want mm -hmm. or Hopelessly Devoted to You and any of the like big songs for the movie. Right. And so I listened to it a couple times, and I was like, I don't get it, and I put it away. Uh, but then Grease 2 came along, and it's just 
everything about the movie, like still for me to this day, radiates joy. Mm-hmm. And so I loved the movie. And so I don't even remember when I finally saw Grease. And I was probably expecting like to sort of be into it. Like, and then I wasn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's a whole... <laughs> conversation that I'm willing to get into it's I know it's not why we're here today yeah, it, it is okay to boo that if you if you <laughs> um, I just feel like for all of the reasons that people do love the first movie and I don't really want to yuck anybody's yum but <laughs> there's like a sort of like ickiness to it like the like and I get that it's all very overperformed like almost to like a point of satire with like the macho like and the whole point is that they're buffoons but yeah. like everybody in that movie is kind of an asshole mm-hmm. like they're bullies they're gross not to mention the whole line in summer nights when they ask did she put up a fight no. like yeah seriously mm-hmm. this is what we're putting out for our kids to watch Date rape. Yeah. right right yeah. and have either of the two of you seen uh, no. Either of those movies? I've seen Grease many times. I've never seen Grease 2. Okay. So, I know the yeah. songs, but that's all I need to know. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but what is the plot of Grease 2? Right. The plot of Grease 2 is... It's two years later, okay. and there's a new sort of, you know, generation of students at Rydell High, one of whom is Sandy's cousin who is here as an international exchange student, Michael. Who is English, even though Olivia Newton-John is Australian, but whatever. Although she was technically born, I think, in England and moved to Australia. Yeah, yeah, it's very confusing. But do they they actually ever even say where he's from? He has an accent. There's there's a lot of suspension of disbelief in this movie. It's like... There's many, many other right. more ludicrous things that happen besides that. So. None of them look quite as old as Stockard Channing did in the first movie, <laughs> except the background dancers. I, because I think some of the background dancers are the same ones from the first movie, so they've gotten even longer in the tooth. But it's <laughs> like it's fine. You're all still dancing in a high school. We get it. So uh, Michael comes to Rydell, and uh, Sandy has told him to meet up with Frenchie uh, from the first movie, because she is still hanging around and was one of the few cast members they could get to come back. <laughs> so she is sort of his introduction into life at Rydell High. And he's there and he sees and falls instantly in love with one of the pink ladies portrayed by Michelle Pfeiffer, who is gorgeous and luminous and funny and amazing. And everybody falls in love with her. I fall in love with her. So... Then there's a conflict, though, because he's not a T-Bird, which is the gang that John Travolta was in. And the Pink Ladies are the T-Bird's girls. Mm-hmm. So, wow. okay. so then this conflict is he's in love with her. She, meanwhile, is having her own sort of realization that she's not necessarily content to live this life as a teen hoodlum's mall. <laughs> may, so, may I suggest that we skim the details? <laughs> I, said, I don't need to go home um, and see it now. Like, uh, I, I would say the important uh, overarching <laughs> theme, the difference between the first one and the second one, is that 
the roles between the two leads are reversed. Mm -hmm. That in the first one, Olivia Newton-John is a kind of a goody two-shoes and John Travolta is the cool bad boy. And in the second one, Michelle Pfeiffer is the cool bad girl and Maxwell Caulfield is the kind of nerdy guy who learns to be cool. Well, this is, okay. See, it's tricky. It's just, it's a little more complex than that. The the reason that I think there's so much complexity is because this film, there were huge expectations. The first Grease had been this enormous hit. They had planned four sequels and a TV show. um, And all of this money and energy was going into it. And they started filming it without finishing the script. And... Uh, when Sean mentioned Frenchie, who is one of the few characters who carried over from the first one, she disappears halfway through the movie because (laughs) they hadn't finished writing the script. They decided to write out that character but had already filmed all this stuff. So they just kept her in and she just (laughs) randomly disappears. Um, So yeah, I think that uh, central role reversal is the thing that kind of um, draws people to it, that makes it feel like, I think... Calling it a feminist movie is maybe a stretch, but um, there there are feminist uh, leaning elements outside of the scene where somebody lures his girlfriend into a nuclear bunker and convinces her that there is a bomb about to be dropped so that he will sleep with her. <laughs> um, outside of that, correct, correct, yeah, eighties movie. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, the things people would get away with. Right, yeah. but he didn't get away with it, which is oh. another thing I love about the movie. She's okay. oblivious to the whole. The song is called "Let's Do It for Our Country," <laughs> and he's trying to convince her that nuclear war is happening outside and that he's going to have to go off and fight the Russians and that (laughs) neither one of them should die a virgin. And his girlfriend is at first like, oh my God, get me out of here. And then sort of buys into this whole patriotic song that he's singing in hopes to bed her. And then she realizes that she wants to be a nurse. She starts like bandaging him up, like practicing and then at the end of the song, when it culminates, like, yeah, let's do it. She's like, okay, yeah, let's go serve our country and runs out the door. And he's like, no, that's not the do it that I wanted to do. But yeah. That is really awesome. Yeah. 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 Another interesting thing that I think sort of reinforces the whole idea of it being sort of a feminist movie or having even a more feminine gaze is the fact that it was directed by the woman who choreographed the first Grease. She also choreographed it on stage for Broadway. Uh, So I think there just is sort of a kinder, gentler sense. Like, it's still these, like, shitty high school kids, well, high school kids, like, running around, like, they're still mean to Eugene the nerd, but it just doesn't have like that sort of underlying nastiness to it. There's mm-hmm. just sort of like like a happy-go-lucky yeah. sort of everybody's dancing around the halls like yeah. element to it that sort of lifts it a bit above the first one for me. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think maybe having an unfinished script lends a kind of <laughs> joyous chaos to it. There's a lot of absolutely fucking crazy stuff. Like <laughs> instead of... Um, in, you know, in the first one, Olivia Newton-John kind of convinces herself to become a, a cool person sort of in, in an effort to get John Travolta. In the second one, it's almost like Spider-Man, like <laughs> Maxwell Caulfield starts riding a motorcycle and nobody knows who he is. He's like this mysterious cool rider, which is like the big training montages. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And then there's a luau at the end, yeah. like 
yeah. a big swimming pool in my high school, and yeah. In biology class, they sing a song about reproduction called Reproduction. Right, yeah. Which gets really into the whole, like, birds and bees, like, yeah. Right. Situation. Yeah. You think so, they would have uh, thought of, like, a better title for the song, though. Right. <laughs> it sounds very accurate, though. It makes me want to watch it. I'm like, hmm. Yeah. Maybe I'm going to go home and watch It's a pretty catchy tonight. song. I believe on Spotify right now, it's the second most listened to of the songs on the soundtrack after Cool Rider, which is Michelle Pfeiffer's big number, where she yeah. sings about how she's bored with these high school boys and she just wants like a hot, cool guy is with a when she cool bike. Can she sing? Yeah. She okay. also did Fabulous Baker Boys, where she's like oh, lounging on a piano and singing, mm-hmm. which, yeah. I, I think she acquits herself nicely, let's say. Yeah. I, I think she's, she's fine. I think everyone, I mean, she's, she, she, her acting is amazing. I don't think any of the singing in the second movie is that great. Like, you know, Olivia Newton-John is a singer, Mm -hmm. and so those songs are sung really well. There's a lot of kind of talk singing in the second one, and um, cameos by people, like that reproduction song is started by Tab Hunter, who was a heartthrob in the 50s and 60s, and he's in this movie. And it's, whew, like, (laughs) he is not a singer, for sure. He's not. (laughs) But another... Speaking of Tab, another thing I like later realized that I loved about this movie so much, which I didn't really cue into consciously, certainly as a kid, was that it is definitely a more queer movie. Like, I think the fact that, again, there was sort of a female director, but also two of the T-Birds are very gay. Mm-hmm. Tab Hunter was a renowned homosexual. Yeah. And... Uh, one of the other pink ladies is Liza Minnelli's sister, Lorna Luft. I right. just love the colors and the names. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, um, I mean, Michelle Pfeiffer, I think there's an argument there for oh. being a gay icon. And Absolutely. I, it, you know, this was her big first, her first big role, and I think she really stands out. I, I, this is maybe a stretch of a comparison, but it was making me think of seeing... Marlon Brando in A Streetcar Named Desire, that <clears throat> in Dear that God. movie, wait, Ugh. bear with me, bear with me, um, in, in his first big starring role, um, he really stood out as somebody who was actually acting in amongst all these people who were hamming it up and seemed really stagey, and in Grease too as well. I think that you can see that Michelle Fiverr is going to be a star. Yeah, and there is a lot of like comic buffoonery happening sort of everywhere, because it was written by the guy who also wrote Airplane 2, and later went on to write Who's That Girl, starring Madonna. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's not like it's going to be a huge, smart, like, you know, serious anything. But she definitely has such magnetism. And I also really appreciate that she is allowed as a character not only to have her sort of, like, I'm searching for something I want in my life, but she gets to be, like, funny and, mm-hmm. like, sit and, like, tear into a cheeseburger at the diner and, like... Yeah. She's just like a fun, cool, like, like woman, young woman on screen. Yeah, that is so appealing. Yeah, and um, you know, I think this movie almost ruined a lot of people's careers. Ma- Maxwell Caulfield never really recovered. I read an absolutely amazing interview with him. I think in New York Magazine, that's like, this summer is going to be the Maxwell Caulfield summer. And oh, I was talking to my agent the other day, and he was a. Uh, talking to Frankie Baby about, uh, Francis Coppola, about uh, putting me in a movie. And, uh, and all of those, you know, all that cockiness amounted to nothing because he never really did anything again. And I think, you know, Michelle... Empire Fender, Records. 
but yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Twenty five years. He later. still gets yeah. celebrated one day a year. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, Michelle Pfeiffer going straight into Scarface and then becoming this huge movie star, and I think. Uh, it's to her credit that she looks back on Grease 2 fondly and has nice things to say about yeah. it. I think there was a period of her, her career where it was not always listed in her credits, but I do think she's come <laughs> to terms with it and sort of appreciates the yeah the fan base. Yeah. yeah. Um, thank you so much. Uh, I uh, Thank you. Yes, yes. <laughs> Applause for uh, Mr. McMahill. Um, so our next subject is... Quite a change in gear. <laughs> Slave Play is a three-act play by Jeremy O. Harris. The play is about race, sex, power relations, trauma, and interracial relationships. It follows three interracial couples undergoing antebellum sexual performance therapy because the black partners no longer feel sexual attraction to their white partners. The title refers to the history of slavery in the United States and to sexual, <laughs> sexual slavery role play. The play has been at the center of controversy due to its themes and content. And at the Tony Awards, it received 12 nominations, breaking the record uh, that Angels in America had set for most nominations for a non-musical play, and it didn't win a single one. Uh, Meet John Zulu. Do you remember hearing about this play for the first time? I do. Um, my best friend, Natalie Diaz, um, was like, we have to go see this play. And I was like, oh, like what's it about? And all all that you would all that you could see about it was the um, there's like a, a beautiful image of the woman with the fro. And she's either holding like a peach or a cantaloupe, which is like a very big part of like one of the first scenes. Because mm -hmm. the um, her you don't know this at that time, but her husband is like forcing her to eat a cantaloupe off the floor as they're doing this like antebellum like at role play mm -hmm. um and so i was like what is this about like whatever but like i started like looking it up and like you know they were like rihanna went and it was like this big thing and so basically it was this play that like black people were talking to each other about being like you have to go watch this this is like it's gonna like blow your mind and i was like okay let's go i went and i watched from the back of the theater and was riveted the whole time. Mm -hmm. And I'd never seen anything so intense, so um, engaging. And so so much about like my own experience as a black person that's been in interracial relationships, and they and like no one gets away with anything in the whole show. So like there are all these amazing moments where like everyone's hypocrisy is kind of like turned on their head. And I had just never been so I mean, obviously, like, there are things that I've watched that have been, that been like, okay, this is why I wanted to be an actor. This is why I want to make art. But, like, I was just watching, and I was like, fuck, I need to write something. Like, I need to write about something so specific, because when it's so specific and it's so true, it's, like, almost universally um, easy to understand. And so, like, I walked out of that play the first time I saw it, knowing two things, that, one, I had to see it again, which I did, um, and then two, that I wanted to like write my own play. So like, it was a very profound visceral experience. And mm -hmm. like, literally like, you, you basically sit the whole time being like, what are they not gonna do? Cause right. it, it, it's shock and awe the whole time with humor. And so like, you just, 
it, it's it's a very very powerful play, and it's coming back. So I'm going to watch it a third time. Yes, yeah. Um, just to uh, clarify a bit about the story as well, the first act is this sort of antebellum role play. Um, three couples, all interracial relationships with one black partner. Um, and at first, you know, there's little clues as to what's happening. People kind of looking a bit unsure, so not completely committed to the role play. Um, but as somebody in the audience, you're not really sure what's going on. Then the second act is about the actual therapy and introducing the concept of, um, mm -hmm. you know, the, the two therapists uh, facilitating this group. Um, so yeah, it's very intense. It's two hours long. There's no intermission, and um, it has been this. Uh, it's it's divisive because it is um, brings up so many issues about race, about the power dynamics in interracial couples, especially when one of the uh, people in the couple is black. Um, and yeah, it's it, it is interesting to read some of the criticisms, not only from, uh, there have been criticisms from black people, and particularly uh, black women, about the trauma of seeing uh, sexual violence against black women on mm -hmm. stage, but the criticism coming from white people, which is very, you know, there's this famous clip of somebody- Oh my um, God, that somebody, clip is epic. Right, who epic. Uh, is referred to as Talkback Tammy, who <laughs> gets up in uh, the middle of the audience during a talkback after the play and is like, as a white person, I feel attacked by this play. And just goes on and on and on forever. Um, and then Jeremy O'Harris is like, <laughs> this play is not for you. <laughs> it's for the black people. Right. And so if you feel attacked, you need to go and deal with that yourself. But I'm sorry, ma'am, this is not for you. And I'm just like, I was like, yeah, because it wasn't. So. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, gotta, I gotta watch this one too. Yeah. Epic clip. Yeah. And I mean, I think that goes to um, what I have heard Jeremy O'Hara say in interviews that the at the core of this play is the idea that white people need to listen to black people when they're talking about their own experiences and black people in uh, predominantly white spaces do not get listened to. Mm -hmm. um, and thinking about communication, uh, white people listening to black people and not feeling the need to center themselves in that conversation. Yeah, because that happens a lot. <laughs> right, show. right. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that is illustrative of exactly yeah. what the problem was, and it, it you know, it, uh, relates to all of the controversy about what uh, Fox News wants to call critical race theory, which is a you know blanket uh, scare phrase that they're using. It doesn't; they don't even really know what that means. <laughs> um, but this idea that teaching people the truth about the history of this country as it relates to slavery and um, about the way that black people have been treated since this country's inception, um, that that is something that is dangerous, that that's something that is um, a threat to white mm -hmm. people. Um, and I think that that's part of what makes people very uncomfortable, white people very uncomfortable about mm -hmm. this play. I think, I think the play is also just about the importance of telling your own unique narrative. Like, I'd never, well, you know, up until watching the play, like, I'd never really watched a lot of, of 
of content that talked about interracial relationships in that depth and also from the black person's perspective. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, a lot of times when you see it, it's almost like there's like a token quality about it. So like, do you remember that movie, The Family Stone, <laughs> where like one of them's deaf and then he has like a black boyfriend and it's just, or I don't know, I can't remember if like the black guy's deaf or whatever, but there's just like, it just felt so token and just like, oh, we're, we're a super liberal family. So of course one of us now has a black you know, partner. Mm -hmm. But slave play really talks about the sort of power dynamics that are almost like perplex, right? So it's like, if you're a black person, you're dating a white person, are you discriminating against yourself? Like, do you, do you not like other black people? Like, where, where do the lines get drawn? And so I'd never really watched something that really just talked about like all the terrible thoughts that you might have if you like sat and were like, why am I doing this? It's like, is there something wrong with me if I'm not dating other black people or do I just not meet other black people that I'm gonna date? So it's like, to have that, like to actually go to a show and like really understand that I was, it almost felt like therapy really, like mm -hmm. watching the show. And I think that's why it was like, like in the piece that I wrote, which is, has similar themes, it's called Love, Race and Corona. Um, I look at it again because I do think that we as a country almost need to like have these conversations where we where we explain to ourselves why why are people so afraid of like sharing space mm -hmm. and and to have narratives that are not necessarily about the majority of our country, which is basically what like most television and plays are. It's all about it's always about white people and the black person. Like for instance, like as an actor, everything I've played has been a black role. I've never like been colorblind cast for anything. So like, you know, I'm the black gay person that's sort of like a Titus androm androgynous in this like, um, uh, what was it called? It was Finding Fabulous. It was like a web series. Mm -hmm. um, or I was like the token black person in Joseph and the magnetic, you know, singing a Calypso, mm -hmm. which is, <laughs> <laughs> very problematic <laughs> but like you know we're always like the tokens mm -hmm. and very 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 seldom are we the main characters unless it's like an all back play like the color purple so it's like I think that's what's so proud for me about the piece that like it's like no these narratives are important and we can't shy away from that because that's part of like what was so um it was so terrible during the pandemic when all these people were being, you know, like shot in like random places. And like, you know, it was, that was a really profound time for me. Cause I was like, why am I so sad? And I was like, cause black people are dying and it could happen to me. And those, those sorts of narratives, we can't shy away from it because then we'll, we'll never heal. Mm -hmm. And it, I think, you know, uh, with the idea of tokenism and saying black people can be allowed to participate in art as the you know uh, diversity um, character yeah. and not worry about what it actually means to be a black person in the midst of an all-white cast and it makes me think of uh, Grace and Frankie the there's one black character who's an adopted son of a white couple and I read an interview with him where they were talking to him about that and asking him if it bothers him that that's never addressed what it means to be the black son of a white couple and he said, yeah, but the writers don't want to talk about that. So yeah. it's not a part of the show. Um, and I think another really interesting thing is um, 
Kanisha, the character who mm -hmm. is the focus of the last act of the play, she has a 12-minute monologue that's very intense, talking about her experience growing up, being uh, taken to a plantation on a school trip, and she's married to a white British man and talking about how, to her, whiteness is a virus and talking about that literally saying white people brought disease to this country and killed, you know, the mm -hmm. majority of the native population, but also figuratively and saying that she thought that she couldn't be in a relationship with a white person, but that she thought that because her husband was British that it was different. Mm -hmm. But um, it's, it's the same, that like even if it's a different kind of racism that exists in Britain, it still exists, and just because it has a different face doesn't mean that those problems aren't there. Um, so yeah, and it, here we go having a discussion about race where the white person is uh, centering himself and talking <laughs> a mile a minute. Well, it's your so. podcast, so. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, but even like that, the, the, what uh, to use another example of like how like black people are, are usually tokens in artistic spaces. Um, like, just look at what's happening right now with, like, um, actors' equity. All of a sudden, they've decided that they're like, wait, we, we didn't realize that because there's so few black roles, it was harder for, like, POCs and minorities to join the union because there literally just are less roles for us to do. Like, mm -hmm. I can't be in, like, every Golden Age play because the ingenues are all white people. So they're like, we didn't realize it, but we had set up a system that kept POCs out of having any sort of agency in their career. And I was like, I was like, you just realized this? <laughs> like, I've been EMC for like, you know, however long I've been EMC, mostly because those roles are a dime a dozen. Right. You know, and so it's like, there's, sorry. I'm gonna get a finish. No, I just, I was just like, there's, there's so much, and I think we're in a very interesting time because now there are actual shows that are being, um, that are being made with like the minorities at the center. So like Nora mm -hmm. and Queens is happening, even though Kim's Convenience was kind of controversial and racist. Um, <laughs> that show was like a really, really great show about like immigrants and like mm -hmm. Ocean Vong, who is another huge inspiration of mine, um, wrote this beautiful uh, On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous narrative, um, you know, about like, um, the, the mom in the character is a, is, a, is a nail manicurist. And it's like, I've met these women, you know, over and over and over again. I've never heard a story about their lives. Right. Yeah, so I think, I think there's hope. <laughs> and Slave Pay is like part of that. Like, I realized when I watched the show, I was like, oh, part of the reason why I've struggled as an actor is because no one's writing roles about, like, me. Right. And, uh, like... You know, you said about the idea of colorblind casting. Um, I think part of it is saying we are going to allow, <laughs> allow, we're going to make room for people of color to play roles that already exist, but that's one component. And the other component is providing access to all other aspects of the industry yeah. for black people and for other people of color. So we need black writers telling black stories, mm -hmm. black directors directing those stories, and you know all the, that equity controversy 
hearing stories from actors and from uh, you know people who worked behind the scenes talking about the casual racism that they deal with every day because they are the one black person who is in that production. Mm -hmm. And the only way to right those wrongs is to include more people in uh, in what goes on at every level. Yeah, so you can, like, I can play like a vanilla boring person rather than being like <laughs> the 11 o'clock number. Right. You know, like... <laughs> <I was just laughs> gonna, that's inclusive. I was just going to comment sorry. on something you said, or uh, comment to something you said, but Queen Latifah, who is like a huge black actress, yes, um, in her contracts when she got started, she actually put a clause that she doesn't take roles where she dies. Mm. And it's specifically because she was like, people just think I die too well. And she's like, I don't want to always get picked as the girl who dies in the film. And so now I have a clause that says if I get a role, I don't die. And so like, if you watch a lot of her movies, she'll get like shot and like rushed to the hospital, but she yeah. always survives. <laughs> <laughs> but she, she dies she and always, set it off, right? That's the only one. That's like where it started. That's when it that's happened. That's where it started. Yeah, it okay. literally is like from her biggest movie, they said she died too well, and then she was like, all the roles I got offered were like, you do so good, and then in the end, you get killed. Right. And she was like, mm -hmm. I didn't want it. So she has a clause that she doesn't take roles where she dies, mm -hmm. but... Just like scary movies back in the day when the <sighs> black person would die first. Right. We got have that conversation <laughs> for days, okay? Yeah. Um, but another uh, a piece that I worked with, it's called An Octoroon, um, written by a, um, a person of color. Um, I did lobbying for the performance and would often watch white people leave because the first, first section of the show uses the N-word very heavily. Um, and so I do get that example of wanting to sit in the back because often that's where we feel comfortable, not being directly in the front, but in the back watching those shows. And so... I do can connect. I, I'm very interested in wanting to see the show. So it's, let's go see it when it comes back. It's lit. It's yeah. lit. The second time I bought like really good seats because I was just like, I want it all. You know, the first time we were like literally like second from the back. And then this, the other time it was like, I got orchestra seats right in the, because um, uh, T, T, T diff, what is that? that? TDF. Yeah, TDF. Yeah. I got my tickets through TDF mm -hmm. and they were like, yeah, my friend yeah. does Broadway press, and so she got us like really, really good seats. And the set for this show, there's a, a mirror across the back of the stage that's kind of angled towards the audience. And I'm trying to watch the play, and Regina King is in my row, and I'm just like <laughs> staring at her for half of the time. It's very yeah. distracting. Yeah, and that um, mirror is really powerful because I think at, at some point, like they, 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 the mirror actually reflects the audience. Mm -hmm. So you, yeah, yeah you realize that you've been a witness to this violence and that's kind of like a metaphor for like we're all witnesses to like the trauma that we're like in, that that we're subjected to mm -hmm. you know we're all like you know we're all participating in it yeah yeah uh thank you so much thank and, you um, um and uh, now for our final artwork of the evening, um, the Nightgowns TV show, uh, which it was, is, uh, it's, uh, maybe you can clarify this 
whether it's still it on, is ongoing. Still. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Season it, two is in development. Great. Wow. Yay. Um, it is an adaptation of Drag Queen and RuPaul's Drag Race season nine winner, Sasha Velours, um, which offers an evening of short performances dedicated to celebrating the, the diversity, depth, and wild power of drag. Um, the show was, uh, it was turned into a TV show on the streaming service Quibi in April of 2020. Uh, the season consisted of eight episodes including uh, members of Nightgowns the Musical, which was an extension of the original stage show. And the series was renewed for a second season. However, Quibi was not. So um, <laughs> uh, this is an unusual one because you were actually part of this show. So um, do you remember how you heard about this for the first time? So. And, um, <laughs> the, I remember hearing about Nightgowns from watching season nine of Drag Race. And I can literally word for word act out like the entire start of it all. Um, I was like working my Sunday night, you know, doing what I do in Boston. And like I look at my phone and I'm like talking with my best friend Violence and I'm like, Sasha Valor just followed me on Instagram. I was like, the fuck is about to happen? I literally was like, why is she following me? Like, what's going on? And then I like look at her and I was like, oh, what if she's about to ask me to do nightgowns? And like immediately in my head was like, I have to get my shit together. I was like, I need a number. Like, what could happen? And then like shortly after that, I got the message and was like, I saw your number at Bushwig. Would love to have you come to the show. And so... I was very nervous because, like, at that point, it had only been, like, really big names that had done the show. It was mostly cast from New York City. Um, and I felt like I was ready. I've always been ready. I've always wanted to be an entertainer. This is what I was born to do. So I'll, everybody in Boston was like, oh, my God. And I was like, on the outside. Um, but from the minute I walked in the first rehearsal, they've been, like, so welcoming. And at the end of my first show, they were like, uh, don't go anywhere. And I was like, I'm not. I was like, <laughs> I was like, in fact, I'm coming here, but I'm not going anywhere. Um, and so it's just been like really nice, you know, as a queer youth youngin, you always sort of picture like what family is supposed to mean and how supportive they're supposed to be. But like when you discover queer family, it's a whole different thing. And so I consider Sasha and Johnny to be like my queer parents. Mm. Once I discovered what it is that I wanted to do. I just found two people that wanted to uplift that. And so every Nightgowns, I sort of wanted to improve myself. I wanted to show a better craft. Um, and then, ironically, a lot of what I hoped as a dreamer and as a performer, I got through opportunities with Nightgowns. I got to do shows in Europe. Um, one of the most moving experiences I had was a father and his daughter at a show in Paris, both of color. And he was like, I don't get it but my daughter wanted to see you. And so I brought my daughter to see the show. And just to be like a little ghetto kid from Dorchester, Massachusetts, like doing a show that someone in Paris recognized me for was like wild. And so here we are filming Nightgowns, the documentary we filmed in 2019. So this is mm -hmm. three years after joining the cast. Um, we had all knew it was going to happen. I was really excited. And I was like, this is what I've always wanted. I just want to be on a TV show. Um, and we filmed for two weeks. Uh, 
my filming started with me getting off the mega bus because that's what my life was. <laughs> I had like literally the empty suitcase. I'm like, we just need you to be the last one to get off the bus. Just let everyone else get off. <laughs> We're going to wait. And literally that's how my, my shooting started. So like my, my week one was like, and get off the bus action. Um, some of that footage was used, but not a lot of it. And it was a crazy experience. I had never been on a set with cameras. I had never been filmed. I kept saying things that were about like the sound person and like not realizing I was mic'd and they could hear everything I was saying. Not bad things. I was like, oh, they're cute. <laughs> and I was like, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> you know, trying to flirt, but like without cameras around me. Um, and it was like a very, very moving, moving experience. We all were very capable of coming into what we want to present as a performer, as an artist. When I started doing drag, it was to highlight issues that queer women, specifically queer women of color, go through and bring them into white spaces mm -hmm. and highlight that, which is something that like both of you have talked about in this conversation. Um, and Sasha and Johnny only wanted me to uplift that even more. Right. Um, and when we filmed Nightgowns, there was a moment where, if you have seen the series, so. If you have a Roku television or a Roku device, you can stream Nightgowns with Sasha Valor for free. Um, my episode is number five. If you just want to watch mine, that's okay. Um, but when in the episode, there's a moment where I talk about doing the spoken word. Spoken word is what I've gotten known for in the city. And unfortunately, within our two weeks of filming, we just had not have enough time. Uh, but still being able to capture what it is that I love, who I am as a performer and as an entertainer was like something that was so moving. I think the downfall of it all was it being released during the pandemic yeah. and Quibi. Yeah, yeah. We don't talk about her. Yeah. Um, she's gone like the edges. Um, <laughs> but when it was released, it was sort of like a really big moment. We were like, wow, this could be something new for queer performers. It's not drag race. It's not competitive. Mm -hmm. um, it still isn't competitive. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I was very proud of it. It's one of my moments that I, I always like to talk about because, uh, you know, not a lot of people for some reason don't know about it. So I'm like, get the random TVs and watch it. Um, but for me, being one of the darkest people in the cast of color, it, it, I always feel that I have pressure on myself to like, up my performances, up my message, up the story that I'm trying to provide, uh, because a lot of people look up to me in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, coming from Boston and Dorchester, one of my biggest inspirations was Donna Summer. Mm -hmm. And fun fact, I actually asked her people to do her music for the episode, and they said no. <laughs> they said no. But it's okay. She became a Jehovah's Witness later on in her career. Mm -hmm. and, that's a conversation for another day. Uh, we all have a part yeah. two to these conversations. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't know. But if, like, uh, you know, I was from Dorchester. I was like, I want to give inspiration like to people from my neighborhood. And her people were like, it's too gay. Mm. No. Yeah. Um, and so I actually got the opportunity to do Patti LaBelle. I made a custom yeah. remix of her song that she got to approve and listen to. Mm. Um, fun fact, I learned that uh, the new Attitude version that she recorded was like a very specifically paid for song. Mm. Um, and then there's like this like 12 inch record version I wanted to use and they were like, we don't have rights for that one really. You can only use one. Um, but you learn a lot when you like film something. It's almost like when you stage a show, you just like, there's so much more you don't know about. And, mm. uh, now I'm like, I want to film more. Give me some more camera sets. Maybe I'm ready for a drag race. Who knows? Yeah, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. But culturally moving, it has been what I've always wanted to do. And 
it's where I got my start. It's how a lot of people got to know me. And so now I want to take the opportunities I have as a performer and like uplift those and yeah. highlight as many people in my field. And so mm-hmm. if you can check out my episode of Nightgowns, if you haven't already, um, it's literally the start of my story. Yeah. I, uh, watching this show, the first thing that it made me feel was just like, I fucking love queer people. I, I, mm-hmm. I love um, the sense of community and the fact that it's not competitive, I think, adds to that. And it's very clear that um, one of Sasha Bluer's goals is showing the depth and breadth of drag and making sure that people understand that, you know, I think Drag Race is opening up a little bit in terms of um, what they think is possible, but mm. it's been, you know, really forcing RuPaul to... Uh, they put a stopper on the door. It's open, but there's right. a stopper behind the right. door. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was 2018. Yeah. She was still saying she doesn't want trans people on the show. So, yeah. um, But then they had Drag Race Thailand that actually did crown a trans woman. Yeah. And at the time, the Drag Race Thailand wasn't considered a Drag Race franchise. Mm. It wasn't. Right. Um, so... You know, she has bitten her tongue. Mm-hmm. She's gone back on her word. Um, but I would definitely piggyback on that, that Sasha has a very clear vision of what she wants to represent with her legacy from Drag Race. And I think she's a great example of what a winner should do, is, like, go back into your community where you started and mm-hmm. build those opportunities. Yeah. And you can still be as big and as successful as you want to be, but, like, you look at a lot of winners, and they don't necessarily go back to their, their local job they don't go back to support that community. Sasha was doing nightgowns while still on the show. Right. And uh, it didn't necessarily get bigger until she got the crown. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm happy to be a part of that journey. Yeah. I, I think it also really captures um, what is so unique about like Brooklyn drag and like the artistry of it. Um, you know, we were, before this conversation, we were just talking about like how like there are there are not enough lip syncs on Drag Race. Yeah. Like there's not enough performing. That's what drag performers do. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. But you oh. like you know, I've seen you perform live. I, you know, like the reason why when I go to a bar and I know there's a drag queen performing, I immediately go to the ATM and then I immediately go to the bar yeah. and I get twenty singles because I know that I'm like I'm gonna like live my I'm gonna live my best life watching mm-hmm. some gag worthy moment and I yeah. need to pay them. Yeah. And like mm-hmm. that's not necessarily on drag race. It's a bunch of storylines with people and their trauma. Sometimes they heal, sometimes they're delusional. You know. Yeah. But like And I think that's what one thing that I love about the show is that it's been what it has always been. Before, during and after. It's only ever been an opportunity to support the community, to highlight those around her. Mm-hmm. Um and you know I think showing drag in a seated space, so oftentimes when people associate drag performance, it's usually in a nightclub setting, like you said. It's like Mm -hmm. you go to the bar, and a lot of the Brooklyn bars look like this. It's a stage in the back in the corner. You got to work your way to it. But nightgowns, you walk in, it's seated. You know, everyone has a clear visual of the stage, and it sort of showed drag. When I started doing it, it showed drag in a way that it wasn't being shown. Mm -hmm. A lot of drag was club drag and then a lot of the staged stuff was casts that you would see from TV but what 
what has happened with nightgowns is that it's become one of those things that everybody wants to get involved in. They're like, a lot of people come up and ask me, they're like, how do I get a nightgowns? And I'm like, I don't know, girl. <laughs> I ain't got no secrets to tell you. <laughs> but like, you know, I didn't necessarily try. I just, I got my start doing Bushwig. For those of you who don't know, Bushwick is a legendary festival that happens. Um, and Sasha, I hear this from everybody that was around her at the time, but saw 30 seconds of my performance and wanted to know who I was. And to me, that's how you make your impression. And I hope one of the things I love from drag and doing nightgowns is that now I have so many opportunities to like go back and watch myself. I think when I started, I was doing so much that I didn't get the chance to like sit and watch. And this past weekend, I celebrated like my four year anniversary of like doing shows specifically in New York. And I just like watched my video and I was like, okay, it validates everything I'm doing. You know, I, I may have came, came to the city on a mission in my mind, but like all of that work, getting titled Miss Bushwick now, it just validates everything I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and now everybody around me is like, you deserve it. Like you've, you put in the effort. And so I'm hoping that from Nightgowns, I'll be able to build more opportunities, specifically for performers of color, mm-hmm. um, in the sense that what Sasha does with Nightgowns. And so I will be doing a show at the end of November. <laughs> this is very briefly. Um, but I'm, in my sense, what my vision is for my version of Nightgowns is like full production, POC dancers and energy. And uh, my show Kaleidoscope will be coming to New York City at the Q at the end of November. Be on the lookout for that. Yeah. Um, I hate plugging myself, but I love it at the same time. <laughs> But it's just something that I've worked up for. I, I think a lot of people in the scene know me as like a performer. A lot of people know me from nightgowns. I appreciate that. It's one of those things where I'd rather someone come to see my show and be moved by what I do on stage because that's considered the important thing. You know, you go see a Broadway show, you get moved by the performers. You don't get moved by the costumes unless you're watching Wicked and she's floating in the air and you're like, I've never seen someone defy gravity. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of videos of it. Um, but like, you know, for me, it's like having those moments where people can be like, this is something I never thought I would experience. Mm-hmm. Like, I do a lot of spoken word. You can find her on YouTube for show. But like having a show where someone's reciting your material back to you or like acknowledging what you do and how it moves them is what motivates me to want to do a lot more with my drag. Yeah. Um, and now I've sort of look at it in the way Sasha does is think about a vision, think about a story, something purposeful that you want to tell and execute that versus focusing on like all of the little things that you can do. A lot of the little things are fun, but like when I started, I worked six nights a week. That's cute money. Mm. Not for my feet, not for my knees, not for my costumes, (laughs) but it was cute. But now, you know, I get to think about what it is that I want to do. I get to do opportunities like this and speak on panels. I've spoken at conferences and you know, a lot of that is thanks to nightgowns. A lot of that is because of my training before. But now with nightgowns behind me, people take me a little more serious. And yeah. I appreciate that. But also, like, there are communities that, like, want to invest in you. Like, I met Neon because I'm, like, friends with Mary Cherry. Yes. And, she, and I was like, well, who, who else can we get for this gig? And she's like, this girl Neon, she's, like, up and coming, like, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, who is this person? Yeah. But, you know. And now we've done, like, three digital yeah, gigs. Yeah, and, but, like, as soon as you were on the panel, I was like, this person's, like, somebody. Yeah. 
So. But prior to like meeting Sasha and doing nightgowns, uh, I worked with a theater company out of Boston called the Theater Offensive, which is a nonprofit LGBT-based theater company that was one of the first of its kind. Um, and I worked with the youth ensemble called True Colors that wrote and produced plays every year. So like, I have a lot of experience on writing and production. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I don't really do a lot of that with my drag. It's like kind of secret. I'm like, I'm a secret spy. <laughs> But now I really want to, like, you know, I get these opportunities to, like, really want to do something, and a lot of that education and training can be useful. I never thought that I would combine all of it, but, you know, I've spoken at Harvard in drag about identity. I've spoken at the Gleason Conference about identity. I've presented workshops on hip-hop and queer movement. Um, You know, there's a lot that I've done that I didn't do with drag, but now I'm like, I can be a drag presenter. I can speak at conferences with my drag and sort of presented in the art form that it actually is versus being the performer. Yeah, and I, like one of the things that I really loved about the Nightgowns TV show is that each performer really gets to tell their oh, story, yes. gets to talk about what their drag means to them, what they're trying to say with the performance that you see later on. And as Mijan was saying, you get a little bit of that in Drag Race, but it's a contrivance. It's like, it's edited as reality TV. Every, you know, they they want story arcs, they want heroes and villains, they want sad moments and happy moments, and this was, like, honest. And, you know, I know all TV is edited, but giving each performer a chance to... Even with this being edited, it's very real. Like, Mm -hmm. that is exactly how we act if there is not cameras around, and I think that's what shows the, like, true authenticity of, like, a unit of family. You know, yeah. when you work with like a cast, specifically on like long productions that have long runnings, you sort of get to know how your cast works. Yeah. And that's how we feel with Nightgowns. We, so Nightgowns the musical is what we worked on during the pandemic, which is sort of the second edition to season or season one and a half. Um, and with Nightgowns the musical, it was a completely devised piece of work. So we all got on Zoom every Wednesday and we would talk about stuff. Sasha would have the mood board and the inspirations. And so my character, uh, her name is Dion Diamond. She's like an ingenue, but my character is based off of Diana Ross and the Supremes. And so I did a lot of uh, character studying. I did a lot of inspiration. And I used my songs are from her recording of Funny Girl. Mm. And a lot of people don't know that Diana Ross and the Supremes did the entire album at the exact same time of the original. It's their worst charting album. Um, it it is but it was essentially recorded in the sense of being like a piece that they could use to pitch uh, her solo career but you know I did a lot of history digging to present these characters in Nightgowns the musical is streaming on Sasha Blur's website for free with a $10 (laughs) suggested donation that pays the performers if you want to check it out but to spend the pandemic doing digital things to mm-hmm. almost sort of not think that we're going to get this opportunity to do something. We, again, I don't know why we get the pressure of two weeks, but yeah. Sasha was like, we have a week to rehearse together. What? And then we opened. <laughs> oh yeah, my God. Well, ho- hopefully. Listen, that's how the pandemic worked us, okay? Um, <laughs> hopefully for the second season, you'll uh, get to Yeah, the second season. So we've been in conversation. Um, it's definitely being picked up right now. Sasha's working on some of her own stuff, but 
you know, with that conversation when we were talking, it was like, how do we make what we have done bigger? Mm-hmm. And at that time, we were focused on going global. We were like, can we get international people to do this show? Um, highlight some AFAB performers, some drag kings, some, I don't even know if there's a name for like not AFAB versions of drag kings, but like men who are men assigned at birth that do drag, but not in like king form, you know? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of performers that we wanted to like highlight in this sort of digital age and era of like what we have been trying to do as a living because we were the last people to get work and a lot of us still don't have work. Um, actors, performers, you know. Unfortunately, we're the, we're the bottom of the scum. I hate to say it, but that's what the world likes to think. Yeah. Even though we entertain the masses. You're watching us on TV. You're watching us on your phones, you know. Yeah. But but I'm, it sounds like you've got a lot of exciting stuff coming up. So yeah. I mean, and, it, should be, yeah. it should be a lot of fun. You know, you never know what's going to happen. There's always the ideas. There's always the conversations. But until they're like, here's a date, put it in your computer. It's happening yeah. until um, the check clears. I yeah. mean, listen. Until <laughs> I have real. to send. Until I have to send the uh, what's it called? The invoice. That's how you know it's not real. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, from a lot that I've been doing in New York, I, I I do appreciate a lot of the opportunities, and I try to make sure every chance I get to do something, I highlight everything that I've done up until now, especially in New York, because I would not have the career if I did not come to New York or do Bushwick or even get involved in nightgowns. And so, you know, it's something that I've always wanted. This is why I say I got good juju. I got good karma. I try to do good, speak nice, be nice. There are some people who can be really evil in the scene. (laughs) We know those people. (laughs) Don't look at me. I'm not looking at you. I'm just like, you know who I'm talking about. (laughs) No, I know. know, know. But like, you know, I think that's what I love about Sasha is that she carries herself in this way of just wanting to uplift others and... You know, it makes me just want to do the same thing. So, yeah, that's amazing. That's a, a wonderful yes. note to finish on. Check out Nightgown yeah. season one. I love saying that <laughs> season one on Roku and then Nightgowns the musical is streaming on Sasha Valor's yes. website. Fantastic. Um, and that is about it, uh, everyone. Thank you so much. This has been so exciting. Thank you to Sean McMahill, Mijan Zulu, and Neon Calypso. Um, thank you all for coming. This has been absolutely incredible. I'm Adam Unz. This is The Spark Parade. Have a good night. Woo! Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.